As president of the Board of Supervisors, it's my duty to make this announcement. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. On November 27, 1978, former police officer and city supervisor Dan White snuck through the first floor window of San Francisco City Hall, tracked down Mayor George Moscone, and shot him four times at point-blank range. He then left the mayor's office and found city supervisor Harvey Milk, the first openly gay politician in the history of California, and shot him five times, twice in the head. He walked out of the building unapprehended, eventually turning himself in and receiving a light sentence. Today, I want to talk a little bit about who Harvey Milk was and why he was important as well as the Moscone Milk assassination and the ensuing trial. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 111, The Twinkie Defense. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. As always, my sources can be found in the description. With that, let's get on to the show. I suppose the best way to start would be, well, at the beginning. Harvey Milk was born on May 22, 1930 in Woodmere, New York. He first knew he was gay in high school, but the social climate of the 1940s ensured that that remained a secret. He went on to study mathematics at the New York State College for Teachers before enlisting in the Navy in 1951, serving on the USS Kittiwake during the Korean War. After the end of major hostilities in 1953, Milk moved to California, where he continued to work for the Navy as a diving instructor. He resigned in 1955 after being questioned about his sexuality, receiving an honorable discharge. From there, he moved back to New York, where he lived through most of the 60s, becoming first a public school teacher, then a statistician, and then a Wall Street analyst. Throughout this period, he first began to pursue other men, which could be exceedingly dangerous. A number of Milk's partners were arrested, beaten by the police, and driven to contemplate and attempt suicide due to the impossibility of living life outside the closet. It was in 1970 that he first went to San Francisco. He began working for an investment firm on Montgomery Street before being fired shortly after protesting Nixon's invasion of Cambodia. Without a job, he soon found himself back in New York, working in production for a number of plays. During his time in the city, he met Joseph Scott Smith. The two remained together until Milk was assassinated seven years later. In 1972, the couple moved to San Francisco, and a year later used their last thousand dollars of their savings to open Castro Camera at 575 Castro Street. The small shop soon became a center of gay life in the neighborhood. In fact, people would come from all over the country to develop their film at this little camera shop that accepted them for who they were. It only makes sense then that Harvey Milk himself began to become more and more of a leader in the gay community. 
In reaction to the continuing Vietnam War and Watergate in 1973, Milk decided to get involved in local politics, seeking to run for city supervisor on a platform that supported gay rights, opposed corporations, sought marijuana legalization, as well as expanding protections for minorities and the elderly. Even though his campaign was inexperienced, Milk came in first within his district. Unfortunately, at this time, San Francisco city elections didn't allow districts to directly elect their own representatives. San Francisco has an 11-seat board of supervisors, but in 1973, only six were up for election. The top six with the most votes won each of the respective seats. And so even though Milk came in first in his district, he came in 10th overall. For the next two years, he became more and more deeply involved in the politics of San Francisco, building extensive political coalitions with organized labor, black and Hispanic groups, construction workers, and the elderly, in the process adopting the moniker, the mayor of Castro Street. During this time, he was the founder of the Castro Village Association, a group of local community members and business owners that worked to promote gay-owned businesses. Milk would serve as its president and became the chief organizer of the Castro Street Fair. The first fair was in 1974, and it quickly grew to be an event that attracted people from across America. The following year, Milk decided that he would again run for city supervisor. He was now seen as a serious political contender, and although he placed seventh, over the course of the supervisor race, Milk's new ally, State Senator George Moscone, successfully won the mayoral election and offered him a position as a city commissioner. Milk accepted, and in 1976, he was appointed to the Board of Permit Appeals. Though the Board of Permit Appeals wasn't necessarily where he had envisioned himself, and so he began considering running in the upcoming election for California State Assembly. Though there was a slight problem. He had already told Mayor Moscone that he wouldn't run, and agreed that another Democrat, future Mayor Arthur Agnos, should run instead. Milk's then-decision to enter into the running created a difficult struggle for attention between the two campaigns, as they both had the capacity to operate extensive networks of volunteers. Though the Milk campaign fought hard, they eventually lost by an exceedingly thin margin. It seemed again that he was out of City Hall. Well, in 1976, a group of activists called the San Franciscans for District Elections successfully got a new measure on the ballot for November that would change the way that supervisor elections functioned. Called Proposition T, it would allow neighborhood districts to elect their own supervisors, as opposed to the previous at-large system. It passed which meant that Harvey Milk could run again in Castro's District 5. In what would ultimately be his last campaign, Milk combined his previous messages of economic and social equality with rhetoric meant to combat the reactionary Christian fundamentalist ideas embodied in figures like Anita Bryant and California gubernatorial candidate John Briggs, who ran on a platform of immediately firing all gay and lesbian school employees. If you'd like to learn more about Anita Bryant, the homophobic orange juice queen, check out episode 46. Milk's campaign was stronger and more prominent than ever. And when it came time to count the votes, it turned out that out of 16 candidates, he'd come in first. Sworn into the 1978 Board of Supervisors along with him was former police officer and firefighter Dan White. 
In Milk's first months as a supervisor, he focused on a number of issues, his most notable being the passage of the Human Rights Ordinance, a first-of-its-kind piece of legislation which banned discrimination based on sexual orientation in employment, housing, and public accommodations, all within the private sector. It passed 10 to 1, with the lone no-vote being Dan White. Previously, Milk had opposed a voting item that White had campaigned upon, causing it to lose. And from this moment onward, White held an incredible grudge against him, refusing to support anything Milk proposed. On November 10th, 1978, White resigned as he said that the salary was too low to support his family. He had previously left his well-paying position at the fire department to hold a seat on the board of supervisors. Almost immediately, he regretted his decision and asked Mayor Moscone to rescind his resignation. Initially, the mayor accepted White back, but after hearing from the other supervisors, particularly Milk, Moscone decided that Dan White would not be welcomed back to the board. Even if White had not been an unpleasant egomaniac, a sentiment shared by the board, it would be possible to break the deadlock in city government if the mayor appointed a new liberal politician to the open position. On November 27, 1978, a day before Mayor Moscone was set to nominate White's replacement, Dan White had a friend drop him off at City Hall. Ten days earlier, the mass suicide of notable San Francisco group The People's Temple prompted the mayor to install metal detectors within the building. To avoid them, White climbed through an open first-floor window. He made his way up to Moscone's office and asked to speak with him. After hearing again directly from the mayor that he would not be reinstated, Moscone invited him into his chambers so that bystanders couldn't hear their conversation. As he began pouring the pair drinks, White shot the mayor in his shoulder and chest, lodging a bullet in his lung. When he collapsed on the floor, White followed with two shots to his head. Bystanders say it sounded like a car backfiring. White quickly left the office and set out across the building to find Milk. He encountered him alone in a hallway and asked him if he could step inside of his old office and talk. Once the two were inside, he opened fire, shooting Milk once in the wrist twice in the chest, and twice in the head. The state medical examiner said that White had fired the second shot into Harvey Milk's head while pressing the barrel into his skull. Dan White got up and simply walked out. Later that day, he turned himself in, having his confession recorded by a friend of his, Officer Frank Falzon. Dan White was charged with first-degree murder, and, thanks to a recently passed proposition, now faced the death penalty. White's defense attorney, Douglas Schmidt, made the argument that White was, in reality, a good, gentle man, but that he had suffered so much since resigning from the Board of Supervisors that he snapped and assassinated two people, something that, apparently, he had no control over. One of the ways that the defense illustrated the precipitous mental decline of Dan White was that he had recently dropped his healthy eating habits in favor of binging junk food by drinking Coke and eating Twinkies. The argument was that those successive binges, along with other behaviors, were evidence of what's called diminished capacity, which means that the defendant doesn't have the mental ability to understand what they're doing. 
acting Mayor Diane Feinstein. Yes, that Diane Feinstein, formerly the president of the Board of Supervisors, testified that the Dan White she knew would be incapable of hurting someone. All of this, of course, meant that Dan White could not possibly be guilty of murder, and the all-white, all-straight, majority-middle-aged woman jury agreed, convicting him on the lightest possible count. Two counts of voluntary manslaughter. He was sentenced to seven years, eight months in prison. With good behavior, he would be out in five. Though the twinky aspect of the trial is really quite minor, it's what stuck with the press. And even if it's not the most accurate description of what the entire trial was like, it certainly captured the spirit. There are people, like the defense attorneys for Dan White, for example, that get really quite irritated that the Twinkie defense has been used to encapsulate their argument to the court. They're very insistent that their argument was based on a real, serious legal principle or whatever. Even if everyone were to instantly know right now that the common conception of the trial and its aftermath is slightly incorrect, that doesn't really matter, because either way the result is a gross miscarriage of justice. In response to this incredibly lenient verdict, thousands of San Franciscans took to the street in what are now known as the White Knight Riots. The police retaliated by raiding gay bars and brutally beating those inside. In 1982, voters overwhelmingly approved a ballot measure that would eliminate the plea of diminished capacity throughout the state. On January 7, 1984, Dan White was paroled from Soledad State Prison. He only served five years one month, and nine days. That same year, he supposedly met with Officer Frank Falzen, the friend who had originally recorded his confession, and admitted that he had planned it all. That he had planned to murder, in fact, the entire Board of Supervisors. A year later, on October 21st, 1985, his brother found him in his garage, dead from carbon monoxide poisoning. The only record of him feeling any remorse over his actions comes from his prison nurse, who in 1983 overheard him say, I guess they were nice guys. Too bad it happened. George Moscone and Harvey Milk lay in state in the rotunda of San Francisco City Hall. Moscone was buried in Colma, California, next to his mother. Milk, who had no wish for a religious celebration, was cremated. His ashes were spread across the Pacific Ocean. A small canister of them was buried under the sidewalk in front of what used to be Castro Camera, underneath a plaque commemorating his life and his belief in a better world. On November 18, 1977, nine days before he was murdered, Harvey Milk recorded what would be his final words, to be played only in the case of his death by assassination. In it, he makes an impassioned plea for people everywhere to come out and celebrate their identity. If a bullet should enter my brain, he said, 
Let that bullet destroy every closet door in the country. To end this week's episode, I'd like to play you Harvey Milk's Hope speech. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off. Somewhere in Des Moines or San Antonio, there's a young gay person who all of a sudden realizes that she or he is gay, knows that if the parents find out, they'll be tossed out of the house, the classmates would taunt the child, and the Anita Bryans and John Briggs are doing their bit on TV, and that child had several options. Staying in a closet, suicide, and then one day that child might open a paper and it says homosexual elected in San Francisco and there are two new options. The option is to go to California. <laughs> stay in San Antonio and fight. Two days after I was elected, I got a phone call and the voice was quite young. It was from Altoona, Pennsylvania. And the person said, thanks. And you've got to elect gay people so that that young child and the thousands upon thousands like that child know that there's hope for a better world. There's hope for a better tomorrow. Without hope, not only gays, but those blacks and the Asians and the disabled and the seniors, the us's, the us's without hope, the us's give up. I know that you cannot live on hope alone, but without it, life is not worth living. And you, and you, and you, you've got to give them hope. Thank you very much.